where do you begin to train your mind? Is it simply being present and aware, kind of connecting to the here and now, or is it much more broader than that? How do you train your mind to think this way? It's a good question. You know, it's funny, just hearkening back to the slow down thing, because I think this is a really good initial thing to do. And I created this course called 21 Days to Ease Anxiety Naturally. And the very first lesson in that course is about slowing down. So slowing down what might be called an informal practice of awareness. Informal means like we can weave it into our everyday life. It doesn't take any extra time. Like everyone loves that because it's like, yeah, I don't want to take any time out to do anything. Yeah, yeah, let's just do it. They're not going to take any extra time. Save me time, save me money, save me whatever. So it's not going to take any extra time. So all we're doing is we're saying like slightly slow down in the things that you're doing. You, everyone who's listening to this can practice this today. What happens is your body is connected to your brain, right? Your nervous system is in your skull, it's down your spinal cord, it stretches out through your arms and legs. And so if you slow down, your nerves are picking that up, right? Sending a message to your brain like, oh, okay, hey, we're slowing down right now, that's cool. You know, we're not, we don't need to be so stimulated, we're just slowing down. And, and then when you slow down, you always wonder why older people sometimes seem to be more present. Like they notice the small things sometimes, the flower, the this or that, and, and, and their bodies have slowed down. So it's like they see more around them in some ways. They can catch the details. Yeah, they can see the details. Right, I love that. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. Today, we're joined by another expert, Dr. Elijah Goldstein. And now, Elijah, I had actually found out about you through Calm, the Calm app. So I'm sure you're familiar with that. You've done uh, two different uh, mindfulness meditation. Uh, I don't know what you call those on there, but they're tracks. I listen to them. Anxiety release, easing depression. That's how I found out about you. And I did some research and it turns out you're pretty smart and you do some cool stuff. So <laughs> tell our audience how smart you and cool stuff you've done. Oh, okay. So thanks for that introduction. Yeah, Calm's a great app. Um, I'm, on, I'm on multiple apps, you know, and done, you know, hundreds of different meditations over time. And, and I think for me, I'm, I'm a psychologist and I'm a mindfulness educator. Mindfulness just being like intentionally paying attention to, you know, our lives, something that's happening with more of a skillful eye, I'd say. And I've written, you know, a number of books over time. The first one was the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Workbook, which was based on a very popular global program, eight-week program started by John Kabat-Zinn and Saki Santorelli, and then kind of built on that with different books, The Now Effect, Uncovering Happiness, and finally kind of realized that people need more experiences, longer experiences. They need to be in community. And so I built, started building programs, Mindfulness at Work, that was 
um, exclusive to Aetna and has now been replicated across multiple healthcare companies. Hundreds and hundreds of different people have gone through that. A course in Mindful Living, a six-month online mentorship program that's now turned into a professional training program and so on. Small courses, 21 days to ease anxiety naturally. And I love, I love putting people through programs, especially if they're really engaging because and in community because that's where the real change happens. Mm. And so, you know, we keep, and I keep writing, so I'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, that's what I'm most excited about with having you here today is, you know, not just all the information that you have, but the way in which you've made it so applicable because with our community, we we talk about, you know, the brain, not just what we know about the brain, but how we can use this information to change our lives. And that we encourage our listeners to sort of be your own scientist of ex- exploring different things and trying different things on to figure out what works because we all get stuck. How did you get started doing that? I mean, to dig that deep in to, I mean, to be so accomplished, where did you get your curiosity and, and I, get, I guess your your desire for doing this kind of stuff? You know, I think it's in the same place a lot of people do. I mean, I was, uh, just to give you just a second of, of background, I mean, in my early 20s, I was uh, in San Francisco during the dot-com boom, and I was I was actually in corporate world. I was in sales, and I was managing sales teams, and I was working hard, and I would say, as a lot of people do, I was playing a whole lot harder. And so I was, you'd find me like south of Market Street and in and, and San Francisco, like at the clubs, like late at night, up for multiple days at a time sometimes, just completely abusing my mind and body. And and I think in that suffering that was there, there was an insight that I cannot continue living this way. And it was this one night that I was, you know, south of Market Street with this guy that I told my friends, if you ever catch me with this guy, this guy just looked like he was living like a life. It was a, a huge amount, of, a huge amount of trouble. And I was in the back of his broken down limousine, you know, just trying to stay up for the next day. And um, it was in that moment that I woke up and said, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here exactly where I told people I would never be. And I got out of the limousine and I walked back home because you could do that in San Francisco. But I woke up and said, like, I need to do something different. And that's when I got, I had actually a family intervention, like close thereafter. And it was requested that I go to this adult retreat outside of Los Angeles. And it was there that I realized that what really mattered to me was being able to be more present in my life and being more present for the people I love and to be more focused and stop abusing myself so much. And the final anecdote that I'll say about this story is that when I got back into back to San Francisco after that month and I had all these insights, I thought I was totally changed. That was it. You know, it took me only two weeks to fall back in my old habits, which um, a seed was planted. But the power of that, the importance of it was my understanding that I understand now more than ever of how important it is to put yourself in the right environment, surrounded by the right people, if you want to actually be the change you want to see in yourself and the world. And so I ended up going back to graduate school. I left the corporate world, went back to graduate school. That's where I came in touch more, more with the practice of mindfulness. And I got trained as a mindfulness educator there over time. And it's helped me tremendously be able to be aware of the difficulty within myself, the challenging emotions, the stress that's there, the anger, the frustration, the sadness that can be there at times, especially in this world we live in at the moment, and be able to meet it in a more skillful way versus our reaction will typically be to move away from it because we're wired to move away from what's challenging and difficult, move away from what's stressful and move toward what's comfortable. You know, you bring up sort of this huge 
aspect of life that we talk about a lot, which has to do with awareness. And I love the way that you put this in your book. I believe it's the now effect. And you said, the simple yet subtle truth is that life is decided in the spaces. However, the power to choose our responses comes only with an awareness of that space. As we practice becoming aware of the spaces in our lives, we soon come to understand that these are actually choice points, moments in time when we are aware enough to choose a response. Mm, Yeah. And I think that that's so significant because you're getting at, there is this sort of moment when time slowed down, even though things were busy and around you, that you got a different perspective, right? And so can you talk to our listeners about the role of awareness as it relates to sort of change and and mindfulness? Yeah, first of all, we all have it. <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, it's there. <laughs> we're aware. Right? Yeah. We're aware. We are aware. We're, yeah, <laughs> right. it's all there. Sometimes you have to just stop and pause. And we all have experiences of like waking up a little bit and saying like, oh, I'm caught in this routine. And this patterning that's just happened and blended over time, sometimes not until we're much older do we wake up. There's a guy, he's passed away. He was a rabbi and a peace activist, and he marched with Martin Luther King, and his name was Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he said, life is routine, and routine is resistance to wonder. So what he was saying there, if we kind of fast forward that to the field of neuroscience for a second, is he's saying like, we're wired, our brain is wired to make things routine so we can juggle more complex things over time. Just the, it's called procedural memory. Our brain memorizes procedure. And that's healthy in a lot of places. Like now I don't have to think about picking up my spoon and putting it to my mouth anymore without bumping it all over my face because my brain knows exactly how to do that. Drive a car, type, talk with everyone here right now. But the problem is we get caught in unhealthy patterns, especially in response to stress. And our relationships with each other, our family, the people we love, our brain freezes them. And all of a sudden we think we know exactly what they're capable and not capable of or what we're capable and not capable of anymore. And so we stop trying to be our best selves maybe. But what we need to do and what that the now effect was based on, as you mentioned, which was this quote by Austrian psychiatrist, neurologist, and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, when he said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And in that space, what I said is that you can take that space and when you apply the practical application of mindfulness, of this awareness, and by the way, it's just it's a skill that we can all build and apply, we can actually widen that space between stimulus and response so that we can see those choice points grow. We can see, we can get perspective. It's literally what we're doing is we're bringing blood flow from the base of our brain to the prefrontal region of our brain, which is more involved with impulse control, motion regulation, perspective. And so, you know, then we can say to the emotional part of our brain, hey, man, I see you right, or hey, woman, either one, I see you there right now. You're really, wow, you're really overreacting in this moment. Let me just kind of soothe you right now and let's see what the most appropriate or most skillful response is. As a visual representation of that, kind of see that as like pinching and zooming, right? Like in a photo, right? (laughs) That's almost yes, what that yes, is. Yes, you're like, zooming in. You're, you're, you have less detail and you pinch and zoom in to get more detail of that space because between those two is your opportunity to choose. And we've talked before about the power of choice. And it seems easy just to, I suppose, maybe pontificate the power of choice. But in a practical way, in a very loving way, you know, your choice is your superpower. You know, and you and you have the ability to maybe have these insights that you did. And as you were sharing your story, I had some I suppose shared similarity in my past with yours where I've 
been in moments where I was abusing my life, so to speak, or my, my body or my brain and clubbing or doing different things in my life where I was not the Adam that is here today talking with you. And I had those same kind of moments like, hey, what are you doing? This is not you. This is not your life. This is not what you want. And we so too often talk on this show about, you know, understanding what you want, you know, what what motivates you? What are you driving towards? You know, what's your purpose? Not, not so much just purpose, but like, what is your core motivation? You know, what are you optimizing for? It's what we say a lot. And I think that's what people miss is that awareness. And what comes with that is understanding who you are, what you want to be. And I suppose to use back your words, who you can surround yourself with or the environment you can put yourself in to get there. And that's what that space is. Pinch and zoom. You know, I love that. I've never used that before. And that's why we're in conversation yeah. right now. Pinch and zoom. So much comes from conversation. That might be the title of my next book. <laughs> my next book, Pinch and Zoom. People are like, what's that? I'll give you credit for it. I love it. <laughs> well, right. But some of this, like, I think, way in which our brain can have flexibility but structure. Because one thing that stood out to me was about stress, right? And how stress affects our response. And so... You know, if I can't calm my brain down, I'm going to see that really small square view and I can't then zoom out to see the broader perspective like there might be tools or sort of resources that might help me buffer some of whatever I perceive to be stressful, negative or overwhelming. Yeah. What would happen? So Adam mentioned, you know, the what in some way and the who almost. Yep. And I think an important thing, and, and prior to us getting on here, Mary, we, we talked about this idea of the why. And, and it, it's important that people have, we, we have these things that we know. Everyone here, even who's listening here, sometimes knows what's needed in their life to be more balanced, to be more grounded, to walk, you know, their days with more intention, you know, with more sense of play, with more of a sense of lightness. They know what's needed, but it's really hard to put it into action. And they, we know we need to exercise more, maybe, or stretch our bodies more, or we know we need some stillness, you know, maybe in our lives, or not to eat to the ba- bottom of that bag, giant bag of potato chips, right? But then the question is, if I'm going to employ these things, you know, these things of caring about myself more, being more skillful, why am I doing it? And to ask ourselves that question, to pause long enough and say, you know what, I need to take some time to think about, I always think about this in response to, by the way, our smartphones, like there should be a driver's test, you know, that's (laughs) given before people are given a smartphone. Don't you think? Yeah. Like, let's take a step back and say like, okay, guys, pause. And let's say like, how are we using this thing, you know, in a way that's going to be kind of skillful for us. But the question is like, why, why do I want to employ these methods? Because otherwise the brain's not going to have a reason to actually do those things. If we want to talk about mindfulness and meditation, you saw, you saw for the past 10 years all over every magazine, you know, Time Magazine, Newsweek, like all of these, right? It's been over everything. And it's had the most, like, greatest incline of research, you know, all over the United States and around the world. And the question is, if I want to employ this, yeah, this sounds really cool. You found me on the Calm app, you know, a meditation studio or, or whatever, their Insight Time, whatever apps there are. Why would I want to actually motivate to take the time out of my seemingly busy life to pause and train my brain. What is it going to give me? And I think it's important to take that time out mm. to ask ourselves that question so our brain actually has a reason to make that choice to do that thing, even if it's like to, to break it down. I think yeah. we accept the default. And the default is, is to autopilot, yes. right? 
And it's not to dig deep or to understand myself or self-care. Like we almost need permission for those things. And I think we need educated individuals like you and Marielle, which I'm so thankful. Like I am not educated. I don't have a PhD after or before. I don't have a, you know, I'm not, I'm just curious. I'm a thinker and I dig deep into these things. And so I'm very uh, fortunate to have this conversation with you all and, and talk through this. But I think we just need people like you two to, to give us the scientific backgrounds, but then to give us the permission and the, I suppose the the benefits that can come with caring enough about yourself to think deeply about how you think. And as Marielle has said before and shows, our thoughts are the soil of our brain, you know, and to care about that soil. You know, it's interesting, Alicia, because I think about what you said and sort of the default mode. And so I'm going to out my spouse here. My husband grew up sort of car guy and is so frustrated by all of the technology, which self-driving cars and the less that people do to move and maneuver a vehicle. And he has been like a kid in a candy store since being able to go back and have a manual. Remember those? <laughs> oh, I, I grew up on them my whole life. Yeah. Right? Manual, yeah. And he talks about the different feel that cars have as based on how they shift and how you move them. And there's this sense of power, right? Or agency around I influence my outside world by what I'm doing or how I'm responding. And that seems like an important aspect of mitigating or managing some of this default mode. Uh-huh. Yeah. You need to have the awareness. Like he has the awareness you know, because he has to with the manual mode, right? Of his car. <laughs> we have to have the awareness to do that or else, as Adam's saying, we just go to that. And the interesting thing about the default mode speaking of brain science is that, you know, there's a part of our brain that's kind of named the default network. And that part's involved with like just kind of either ruminating or our mind wandering or if we're feeling an uncomfortable feeling, it might say like, hey, what's this and how do I get away from it? And what are all the reasons this is here type of thing? And what we know about that part of the brain, which is also called the cortical midline area, is that it has an inverse relationship with being present. So in other words, I'll give a very an example that everyone can relate to here, when you're like sitting there at lunch and you're typing away your email, or you're, you know, talking on the phone or you're like doing whatever and you're eating your lunch, how often do you really taste that food? Mm. And another example is if you're really there, it's the most delicious meal on the planet and you're really tasting that food, it's like your favorite thing in the world, how often are you worrying at the same time? Not very much. And so when one is up, the other is down. And and there's a whole lot of like science around that which shows it. But we know that from our practical experience. Basically, science, all science does is usually backs up things we already know, but we it's a window for us because we're a culture that really believes in science. And so we say, Oh yeah, okay, good. That that must be true because that shows me things that I already know. Yeah. Love that. And that's that's important because our default mode can get us in trouble. Because the default mode, just to kind of point this out, the default mode to stress is to start projecting, our mind starts projecting into the future to see about what are all the worst case scenarios that might happen, or it reaches back into the past to say like, what do I know about this stressful experience and brings up a bunch of past stressful experiences. And so we either get caught, you know, feeling like this negative thing from the past or this anticipatory anxiety about the future. And what we really need to do, noting the neuroscience, is take a moment and very practically now that we know this was, we want to kind of lower the volume on the default network in that moment to help ourselves with the stress. And the way to do that, it's very simple. It's just like you can maybe eat a sandwich with more presence and you'll do it. And so, or you can just kind of come to your body, take a couple deep breaths, 
soften any stressed out muscles that might be there. Maybe do a gentle, just like a one second gentle stretch to open those muscles up because you want to open things in your body because that's the opposite of what's happening in your body during a stress response. So we want to open those parts of our body, take a couple deep breaths, and then ask ourselves, because now we're in that space between stimulus and response that we've been talking about, right? We're at that choice point. What's most important for me to pay attention to right now? Is it this social media that I'm on right now? Or maybe it could be. Or because maybe I'm playing and that's cool. Or is it this work that needs to be done? Or maybe I need to get outside and do a, get some sunshine splashing on my face. Or maybe I need to reach out to a friend. God, it's been a while since I've had any real social connection. Or, you know, what is it that I need to be paying attention to right now? Maybe it's that book I've been avoiding. I don't know. It could be anything. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. What should I be paying attention to? Because that next moment, like you could be stressed out. And I've had this actually happen and I had a similar scenario where it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, I need to be productive, but I just can't right now. I just can't right now. So I, I can't do this. I can keep pushing that rock up the hill, not down the hill. Cause that's easier up the hill. Cause it's hard. And it was hard. And I'm like, what's the best thing I can do right now? Almost what matters most right, right this moment. Took a shower, you know, I took a shower <laughs> that's what you needed. like three in the afternoon. You... <laughs> I, mean, I didn't need a shower. Yeah. I took a shower. Cause I was like, I need to just, uh -huh. Take a moment for some self-care. And I was like, that's the easiest. I really wanted to go out and ride my bike. You don't know this, Dr. Elijah, but um, I'm a mountain biker. You know, So I like to go out and hit nature, hit trails. There's a lot of, I would say, brain science embedded in mountain biking because it's a sport. It takes athleticism. Uh, it takes skill. It takes courage. There's a lot of fear involved even. It can be very dangerous. It can be very fun and just enjoyable. But there's progression in it, skill progression. So there's a lot of like leveling up and mind uh, games at play, I suppose, when it comes to conquering uh, a trail or a course or something like that. So for me that day, I was like, what do I need to pay attention to right now? Myself. <laughs> so too often do we not put that in the equation. Myself, self-care, take a shower. Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting, like that ability to stop and slow to ask yourself the question yeah. is super important. In some of Adam and my earlier conversations, I think the the movie, like the children's movie is like over the hedge or something, but it makes me think of this scene where like, you know, when we're stressed, we might be more prone to speed up, right? And sort of like get it done faster or push harder, like make it work when it doesn't work. And yet like in this movie, when everything speeds up, this one little animal, it's like speed slows way down. <laughs> And while everything else is going on around him, he is so deliberate and purposeful in his movements, like ninja-like, but that that's part of what mindfulness can do in response to stress. And yet it's the antithesis of what our brain would tell us to do automatically. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's there's two things there. One is that we we think self-care, we, we've been trained by our culture to think self-care is a waste of time and indulgent. Because we have to be productive. That's like what this country, in the United States anyway, you might have listeners around we the do. world, but the United yeah. States certainly been brought up from the beginning of its you know, incarnation about like, mm, pull yourself by your bootstraps, self-made man type of thing. And that back then, because that's what it was, to bring the gender context into, into the equation. And so now what we're learning is, is that to be able to take care of yourself, take those moments, like take that shower, if we have friends and family that 
are around us, that might be something they're thankful for too. <laughs> is, is, I said I didn't, I didn't need the shower. I didn't need the shower. I know. I know. I'm just I, I know. I feel you. Though. I understand. I know. But what that does is it balances our nervous system and brings blood flow to the front of, front of our brain again, and allows us to then have more perspective and energy to focus on what matters. So we'll make less mistakes. Typically, we'll inevitably get more done. It seems so counterintuitive, but it's really like what research shows over and over again around productivity is that when we take time out for ourselves, we're like way more refreshed, way more on it, way more focused. And, but it's a hard shift to make because our brains really, you know, got the messaging from the time we were born and on that like, no, you need to, you can't take these breaks. You got to be, you know, just on it, you know, completely. And it's, it's, um, you know, we've been misfed a lot of information. Yeah, and so I think you got spoke to this a little bit earlier, but talking about a little bit of the way in which we've been conditioned. And so if you can, like, the way in which our biases show up or we sort of go, hey, this is stressful, let me go draw back from what has happened or infer onto the future, you know, some sort of catastrophe as if that's going to result in self-protection or preservation, right? And that doesn't actually work, right? But these biases likely contribute to interference with decision-making, right? Yeah, but the number one way we try and avoid any situation is to think more about it. And it's not like, when I, I get in a crowd of like a, in front of like a thousand people and I'll talk about, what's the number one way we try to avoid things in life? People say, oh, we sleep too much, we eat too much, we drink too much, we do anything. But the number one thing we do first is we think about it. And it's it's our brains from an evolutionary perspective. It's it's trying to figure it out because we're just wired to survive. Yeah. Our brain doesn't care at all whether we're productive or happy or anything like that. That's not important. We need to propagate. We need to continue our human species, you know, along. Without that, doesn't happen. None of that matters, right? You know, it doesn't matter if you start that new business or complete that project or you know live a fulfilling relationship or you know any of that. If you're not surviving, that doesn't make a difference. So, so its number one imperative is to is to help you survive so it goes into the future and the past to do that and it pulls us. That's why this idea of stepping into that space between stimulus and response, which by the way, is just like a muscle. Again, we were talking about that procedural memory earlier and it's a procedure to be able to give yourself the ability to step into that space and widen that space so you're in touch with that awareness and all the choices that are there and available for you and perspectives is just a muscle. Practice and repeat, rinse and repeat, and you will absolutely notice it coming up more readily. And another way of understanding this is our brain uses short-term memory also as a reference point to make decisions and have perception. I mean, if you had a really hard moment and then you walked down the street and you saw someone walking towards you and you smile and wave and they just looked at you and walked on by, you'd have one thought, maybe what's wrong with me? What did I do? Or what a jerk or, you know, something like that. And if you had a moment where you just received this giant check in the mail that you just kind of made your eyes like go wide open that you did that same walking down the street and um, the person you smiled and waved and the person looked at you and walked on by, you'd say like, oh, I wonder if something's going on with them. Mm. Or, oh, well, I just came into all this money. I don't care. Like, or whatever it is, right? You'd have an exact same event, different perspective based on the preceding event. So if you are working out, you're doing mental fitness, let's say. You're taking time to connect with your body, take a deep breath, maybe do a short meditation, you know, to kind of just train your brain to be here. 
then that's putting those memories in your short-term memory. And so what's happening is a difficult event happens, a stressful event happens. You just hear something on the news or something happens in your life and you catch yourself in a spiral or doing a behavior that's a, an old pattern that's unhealthy for you. And in that moment, your brain brings up that short-term memory of like, hey, this awareness, this presence, this space between stimulus and response, you're more likely to remember it and, and anchor to it because you've been doing it more often. And that's just really how that works. So everybody who's listening to this right now, everyone can do this. Everyone can practice being more present and aware in their lives, just in like the little moments. You'll build up those short-term memories and you're way more likely to be aligned with the person you're wanting to see in this world because you've just practiced it. It's the same as guitar or anything like mm -hmm. that. It's really that simple. So we have this default then you'd mentioned. It seems like we really have to fight for our prefrontal cortex to, to get the blood and do the work. Like it's a constant fight to not fall back into the default. But then we're also sort of driven, I suppose, to some degree towards negativity bias because it's all around us. And to some degree, you might even say people thrive in chaos, right? Like we're almost drawn to it. Like if everywhere is chaos. We're comfortable in it. Well, I only know chaos. I can only really enjoy life in chaos. So I must thrive and drive towards chaos. There's something interesting about that. Yeah. I don't understand it, but we have to fight for that prefrontal cortex. We almost have to like, it's like a, a wake up call, you know? Well, there's some adrenaline in chaos. There's some adrenaline in seeing that, you know, the Twin Towers get crashed into, you know, that this many people have the infection rate in this place or something like that. And, th and there's something kind of scary and exciting about it at the same time to the nervous system, not to judge it, but the nervous system gets ramped up and excitement it ramps up the nervous system just like anxiety does. So there's a little bit of a, a stimulation, let's say, to it. And our culture is very addicted to stimulation. And so that negativity bias that you're talking about, which I'm assuming your audience knows about because you mentioned it, is something that is also stimulating to our nervous systems as much as we might have this kind of push-pull with it. And so we're almost like addicted to it you know, at this point. And that's why we're also so drawn to it. But is it, but to be able to have the ability to step back and say, is this what I'm wanting in my life? Do I want to scroll the news, you know, all the time? Because my mind's kind of addicted to it at this point because there's stimulation, you know, it's there. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, sitting down and paying attention to the breath for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes is not that stimulating. <laughs> and and maybe is more what we need because we got to really work with that that stimulation factor. It could be quite boring, you know, maybe. And so we have to create fitness in our brain. You know, we have to do some mind training a little bit to work with the it, its sensitivity, its oh, its need for stimulation because it, it's not. It's almost like you know what it is. It's just like how in the world we've we sugar was just meant to brought, draw us to certain foods because we, we needed those foods to eat, right? Fruits and things like that, certain vegetables, whatever. And then we what we did was refine the sugar and put it in everything mm -hmm. like that we could possibly <laughs> see. We put in everything just to get people to want to buy our foods, right? Right. And so now we're like addicted to sugar. And so, you know, it's the same thing. We're addicted to stimulation. I'll tell you, the smartphone hasn't helped with that for a second. Yeah. And and so now we have to kind of create a little more mental fitness, ask ourselves, is this helping me or hindering me? Is this healthy for me? What do I actually want in my life and why do I want it? How am I going to get it and who's going to help me? Well, where does mind training begin then? So if I'm going to – it's easy to say that because you've studied this, but for those who haven't read your books yet, hopefully they might, uh, or taken a course or a workshop, 
where do you begin to train your mind? Is it simply being present and aware, kind of connecting to the here and now, or is it much more broader than that? How do you train your mind to think this way? It's a good question. You know, it's funny, just hearkening back to the slow down thing, because I think this is a really good initial thing to do. And I created this course called 21 Days to Ease Anxiety Naturally. And the very first lesson in that course is about slowing down. So slowing down what might be called an informal practice of awareness. Informal means like we can weave it into our everyday life. It doesn't take any extra time. Like everyone loves that because it's like, yeah, I don't want to take any time out to do anything. Yeah, yeah, let's just do it. They're not going to take any extra time. Save me time, save me money, save me whatever. So it's not going to take any extra time. So all we're doing is we're saying like slightly slow down in the things that you're doing. You, everyone who's listening to this can practice this today. What happens is your body is connected to your brain, right? Your nervous system is in your skull, it's down your spinal cord, it stretches out through your arms and legs. And so if you slow down, your nerves are picking that up, right? Sending a message to your brain like, oh, okay, hey, we're slowing down right now, that's cool. You know, we're not, we don't need to be so stimulated, we're just slowing down. And, and then when you slow down, you always wonder why older people sometimes seem to be more present. Like they notice the small things sometimes, the flower, the this or that, and, and, and their bodies have slowed down. So it's like they see more around them in some ways. They can catch the details. Yeah, they can see the details, right? I love that. It's like your analogy, Mario, where the, the fast motion versus the slow motion, it's kind of like they're moving for, through the time much slower because they've allowed themselves to just sensory-wise slow down, right? Maybe That's not right. really through time because we can't, manifest or change the way time flows. We're all moving through time. Um, and that's pretty interesting to think about. You know, on that note, I want to mention this because it's so relevant. And I'll swing it back to business for just a second. So this business we run, Change Law Media, so often in a media business does, I guess, the inertia of media just drive you faster. And so one thing that Jared and I, my partner in this business, have said to push back on that is something you had just said, which is slow down. And so when business or opportunity seems to be just overwhelming that we have to move faster than we desire to move to achieve, to see success, we say, slow down and check yourself. Because all too often do we not just slow down and think like, is that the choice I really want to make? Is this really what I'm feeling? You know, or question what we think is true, examine it, but it takes that process of slowing down to do it. So that's a, that's a moment of mindfulness to be able to do that because you're saying I'm being intentional in the moment. I'm yeah. inquiring into like what I need right now, what I want to focus on, what's most important for me to do. And we can like l- quite literally also do that with physically slowing our bodies down. And, and that, that also creates a mental shift like in our minds. So when you ask like what's the entryway to mindfulness, what's the entryway to this training – you know, that, that, the way you just said it in your business right now, by taking time out and just kind of s- taking time, not moving so fast and reflecting on what my needs are and what, that's a very important business thing to do anyway, I think for anybody, any entrepreneur, solopreneur, anybody in a company to take time out each week and just kind of reflect on what your needs are, what's happened, what you're wanting in the future. That's a, that's a very mindful experience without even calling it mindful at all. Don't need to call yeah. that. That was there prior to the big you know, stream, modern end stream of mindfulness. Yeah. yeah, that's a really important thing to do. And then, so there's the informal piece, which are weaving things through your day, just being present to what you're doing while you're doing it, eating, 
in the shower and just coming to your senses. I mean, it's a great way. It's really rejuvenating your nervous system. I mean, just try it out. You'll see. And even knowing you're walking while you're walking, things like that, listening to your loved ones or your coworkers and just really paying attention to their facial expressions and their body posture and things like that. Or you're just in your car while you're driving or commuting or whatever, and you're noticing yourself doing what you're doing. See if you can pay attention to your body and ask yourself, are any of my muscles tensing right now? And see if you can just drop your shoulders and take a deep breath, something like that. That's the informal piece. The formal piece is more what you, where you found me, Adam, which is more of through f- guided Calm. meditations. Yeah. yeah, through taking time out. I was going to bring it back to that because that's something yeah. of what you say in those two uh, different exercises is, uh, is very much that. Like, how are you feeling? Are you tensing up right now? Just taking time to notice those things. I'm, you know, regurgitating your words back to you, but just taking that time, slowing down. How do you really feel right now? Are you sitting up straight? You know, just being, and one thing you say, which I think is pretty interesting, is uh, just settling into being here. As a guide, you the guide, give the listener permission. Just where you're at right now is where you need to be. You know, and you don't need to be anywhere else. Maybe you could be doing something else, but you don't need to. So just settle into being right here and where you're at right now and what you're thinking about and this self-care you're planning for is okay. We have a show on self-care we're going to release uh, potentially before this episode with you or after. I'm not sure which will fall, but we kind of give that permission. At one point we pause, we say, hey, listener, it's okay to take care of yourself. You have our permission, not that you need it, to take care of yourself, to prioritize self-care. And so often- It's not only okay, it's smart. (laughs) It's a skillful thing to do. Like it, it will it, it create more longevity in your lifespan. It can prevent disease, prevent cellular inflammation in your body. You know, it can prevent against stress, help you respond smarter when, when those responses are there. It can help you focus better and be more productive. So that's when I say when we're talking about the why, like just giving people permission and saying, like, this is okay for you to do this is really important. Also, people acknowledging themselves for taking that time is also important because they're kind of celebrating the fact that they're doing that, which our, our brain runs on emotions. So it like pays attention to what's most emotional. That's why like trauma and the negativity bias, all that, we're going to like, we're going to do like a fast whip in, our, in the direction to pay attention to those things because they're really, emo- they have heightened emotions. But if we can celebrate the good moments that are there, those moments we're taking care of ourselves and like, you know, having gratitude and be so appreciative of that moment. We're heightening our emotion and we're telling our brain, hey, this is important to pay attention to. Pay attention to this too. Because we have to, <laughs> we, we have to send those emotional messages to our brain, but only if it's like real life experience. You know, so that's, yeah, that's, that's a really important thing to do. <laughs> you know, in sort of talking about informal and formal ways, you know, people sort of use the terms mindfulness and meditation interchangeably. And so, for whatever reason, some people have strong feelings about, you know, meditation and sort of going, you know, maybe it's a little woo-woo, sort of spiritual as opposed to just a practice. And so can you help like differentiate those or sort of they're similar but different? Totally. I, I, I did a whole YouTube video on this. People can check out my YouTube channel on that because that's a, a really important question that a lot of people have that question about. So especially when this first came out, this mindfulness thing. So mindfulness, just as a noun, just means awareness. So like really like you can embed mindfulness into anything. You can embed it into a meditation. A lot of people who are very religious, very religious Christians, very religious Jews, very religious Muslims, very religious, you know, anything, anybody initially were like, I don't, I think mindfulness is not good changing our religion, you know, or I don't, I don't, I see it as, 
you know, in discord with our religion. And what I would tell them is, because I, we did, a, we, my wife and I used to run these family retreats pre-COVID. We'd go to Costa Rica, bring families out there. It was, it was an epic time. And we, one time we had like two Mormon families, a devout religious Jewish family and a devout religious Christian family. And we had this question come up. And mindfulness just means awareness. So it's just like being present to whatever you're doing. So if it's prayer, be more present to that, you know, be more intentional. Like that just enhances things, right? So that's just the informal aspect of mindfulness. Then there's meditation, which is specifically taking time out of your life to sit, stand, lie down, or walk and do some sort of structured practice, you know, of some kind, right? Where you're intentionally paying attention, you know, to something, whatever the practice, there's so many different types of meditations. There's mindfulness meditation, there's transcendental meditation, there's, you know, chanting meditation, there's Christian meditation, there's, right, so many different ones. Then there's people who say, I meditate on a flower, you know, there's that kind of stuff too. So there is, under the umbrella of meditation, mindfulness meditation is one kind of meditation. Mindfulness also just means awareness. So you can also use the unstructured aspect, the informal aspect, and infuse that into anything that you want, whether it's transcendental meditation, being more present to it. You can infuse mindfulness into that. But mindfulness meditation, just to close this out, comes from a particular lineage of meditation called Vipassana meditation, which that just means, like, it's just kind of present moment awareness meditation, just being aware of whatever is here while it's here, like that kind of thing. And there's a variety of different types under that of different mindfulness meditations, which people are welcome. I've tons of those from various teachers all on my YouTube channel and um, on my website and stuff like that that you can just, people can just go and practice with as they want to. Yeah, I think this is just so important because I see sort of skills like this and for people to know that they can, it's a skill, so they can learn it and improve upon it at whatever point in time, but it really acts as an anchor, right? And so, you know, as far as I know, senses are all real time, right? So when I attend to the senses, it's like I'm attending to the live channel in my brain as opposed to future channel, past channel, and trying to mitigate the vulnerability that comes with that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we all try to avoid vulnerability, you know. <laughs> right, which is yeah. where I was going to turn because you've sort of brought this around in talking about the importance of relationships. And I don't want to miss that aspect of our conversation as well because, you know, we talk a lot about community and that especially during COVID life, when we're more distant from other people, like it doesn't, you know, minimize the need that we have for social connections and valuable ones, like ones that give to us as opposed that that take from us. And so, you know, talk with us a little bit about sort of your understanding and the role of community or relationships when it comes to mindfulness, managing ourselves in a more effective way. I did, I did a study back in 2006, a national research study that was published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology where I had people kind of do this short mindfulness practice, but I would had them do was did that. And then I had them relate to something that they found meaningful. That could be a memory of a person. That could be um, something of a physical object, something like that. And at the end of the day, after three weeks doing this practice just for five minutes a day for five days a week for three weeks, we found these statistically significant results around stress reduction and well-being. And it was awesome. And then I did a qualitative piece to it, which is interviewing everyone and then finding the themes and what people are talking about. And what I came to was the singular experience that people were experiencing who had these great results was one of connection. So connection was at the epicenter of statistically significant 
reduce significantly reduce stress and increases on and statistically significant increases on well-being. Connection is at the epicenter of feeling well, and that makes sense from a nature perspective, right? If you have a a web, a spider builds a web to be able to catch things, right? So you're safe. So if you're doing gymnastics, you might have a net underneath you because it's strong enough to catch you if you fall. You feel safe if the connections are there. And we are ultimately wired to feel safe and secure. It's so important to us. So when we feel like we have good, solid connections in our lives, we feel well. When we feel disconnected in our lives, we tend to feel unwell. And everyone here who's in a significant relationship or even has these significant friendships in your life, you know this. When those are like kind of fractured a little bit or not in harmony in some way, you tend to feel imbalanced. You tend to feel kind of unwell. We, we think we're these autonomous beings that are walking around in these flesh bodies separated from everyone else. But really when we break it down, quantum physics points to this, classical mysticism from thousands of years of human experience points to this, is that we are way more interconnected than we know. We are not islands at all. And, and what we do know too, and everyone, so many people in business know this too, or different people, in different sectors, when you surround yourself with people who are being the change you want to see in the world, you're way more likely to level up into that space than if you're surrounding yourself with, let's say, the people I was, some of the people I was surrounding myself with back in my early 20s when I was south of Market Street <laughs> doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. And so, and so, there's something about that, whether we want to call it the mirror neurons or whether we want to call it, see a monkey see, monkey do type of scenario, or whether we want to actually say there's these invisible threads between us when we get to the quantum physics level, um, there's something important in feeling, one, safe and secure with having strong connections, and two, having those invisible threads help us naturally rise up. It makes it easier for us to be that change we want to see in ourselves when we surround ourselves with those people. And that's why for me, it was so important. Like years ago, I went from teaching eight-week courses in mindfulness and self-compassion and uncovering happiness and things like that to bringing people through six-month courses because the reason was I wanted people to make relationships with each other in these courses so that when it was over, they then had these circles around them, these tribes around them, as Jim Rohn's kind of famous quote was, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. I wanted that to happen, but what happened was ultimately six, even six months wasn't enough. For some people it was, but not for everyone. And so that's when I opened up, and especially during right when COVID hit, I opened up this space called the Mindful Living Collective. The whole point of that space is to funnel people into it who all want to live with greater intention, greater mindfulness. They all want to learn from each other. It's this great shared learning space and have experiences with each other ongoing or with over time, they create relationships with the type of people that are going to be inspiring, encouraging, and supportive to the person they want to be in this world. And it takes time and it takes relationships, and there's nothing more valuable in this lifetime or on this planet than to have those types of relationships in your life. Even people who's, who lay with people on their... My dad's a rabbi. He lays, he's laid with people on their deathbed for years. And he said, and many people echo this who do that, he said what's the mo- what they say over and over again, people who are dying, is the most important thing in life is who you love and how you loved, and the, next, the rest of it never really matters. Yeah. And so it's the relationships. It's just at the epicenter. But again, how is the issue? The why and the how is typically what we're not really that aware of. And even to get to the who. And in this particular culture right now, 
our brain is going to default to just give me the quick snippet of information because I'm so busy in my life. Right. Yeah. But to make a relationship takes intention and time. Yeah. Right? You don't make a relationship like that unless you have a trauma together. <laughs> yeah. That's instant connection. <laughs> yeah. Trauma is, is definitely. Yeah. Or an adventure, a non-tra. <laughs> or an adventure. Adventures right. are, are also connectors as well. Totally. Absolutely. In a world where, where we're hyper-connected. So some would say we have plenty of relationship because, hey, we're super connected. What is, you know, help us understand why maybe the hyperconnection we are in doesn't give the results you're suggesting because I would say that I'm more connected but then also quite isolated even though I'm quite connected digitally. Like we're missing data. We talk a lot about data points. You asked before we started doing the show like, hey, is this video we're doing, is this part of the show? No, but it's a data point for us. And so what data, what's missing from the relationships and connections we seem to be making in an overconnected hyper world that we're in now to get to the results you're talking about. What's the depth? How do you get to the depth? If you looked at people scanning their social media and you looked at, if they were to kind of do brain scans on that and you were to see the brain scans, you'd see not as many touch points in the brain happening than if you saw someone having some emotional resonance with each other in person or even over video is, is, has more data points than just, again, kind of scrolling through your Instagram, YouTube, social media, whatever it is, right? But that's the way we're getting really connected is through these more two-dimensional spaces and, or texting or messaging, that kind of stuff, which is all good. It's all, it's all, it's not, I mean, what a nonsense, all good, sorry. It's good if it's meaningful right. to you, Right. And not, good not if it's not, it's not all good. The intention yeah. is good. It's good if it's meaningful. I, I mean, two-dimensional is what I mean by that. It's not all bad. There can be good stuff from that, right? But we need more experiences with each other and more really in, intentional connection. That's why, in, so in, in some of these circles we lead in, in the Mindful Living Collective, what we do is we do these things called circles, which kind of comes from the, the lineage. We've secularized some experiences from the Native American tradition, let's say. And what we do is we drop in, we do a short mindfulness practice and we drop in and people kind of move into this space into small groups of sharing what needs to be shared. Like just what, and everyone else is just present to them. That just never happens in our everyday life, right? And so we just kind of share like, um, this is what's happening for me right now. And this is what's on my heart and this is on my mind. And wow, it's really stressful. Or wow, I've had these really great adventures lately or whatever the thing. And, no, and people are just listening with their full attention, just wanting to support and encourage you. And that's how connection is created. When it's it's that authentic, you have the space between stimulus and response, and two people are in that space together. That's how the strongest connection. So we can have a web that's a really weak web, a huge web, right? With the thousands of, t- how many friends do you have on social media? With thousands and thousands of friends. But like a fly is going to just zoom right through it and rip that web apart, right? Or we can have a strong web mm-hmm. that's smaller, but it's strong. It's going to catch everything. It's going to catch you if you fall. It's going to catch everything. And all the research also points to, you only need a small amount of connections. You don't need this huge web of connections. You just small amount of strong connections is way healthier for you than a large amount of weak connections right. with people. Right? I would say too, then the next thing after that is like the, the ability to actually connect. Because you can meet in person with people and have zero connection with them. You know, because maybe they're uh, their emotional intelligence level is pretty low or they're not in the right place in their their life or whatever. And so, you know, this might speak to different ages, but I'm 41. It's not as easy at my age to make friends. Not that I can't. It takes more work and it takes maybe, I'm not really sure what it takes, honestly. I'm just uh, hypothetically speaking, but 
you know, I, I would imagine there's some difficulty there because of maybe the maturity level of the people that you're interacting with. And then maybe even the motivation, because sometimes maybe you're making friends around business relationships and then, well, well, sure, we're friends, but all we talk about is business, which is great, but it doesn't feed to your whole being, like the whole person you are, you know, mind, body, spirit, soul, all those things that really make up Elijah, Adam, and Marielle. Like, it's difficult to find those people. You know, there's one of the things that stood out to me in what you said, Elijah, was about sharing. And in the same way we've talked about sort of cultural the implications of sort of cultural values that here in the States, I don't know to what degree there is, you know, sort of reinforcement around sharing where people are really at because it can come with perceived weakness or vulnerability or exposure that has some negative sort of uh, reflection on me, which isn't true by any means, because as we've clearly pointed out, like everybody struggles, everyone has challenges you know, but that if I sort of like hit the ball and it just keeps bouncing and nobody responds to it, it can feel very void and not reinforcing to then share again. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that Brene Brown has sold millions and millions and millions of copies of books. <laughs> Touche. And her whole work is on vulnerability um, because it touches, it touches, everyone feels it and everyone has a fear around it. Um, and it, from an evolutionary perspective, of course, if you're vulnerable, you're going to get, you don't have your armor on, you're going to get, you know, and someone comes and attacks you, you're more likely to get killed. And so an emo- a brain records it in the same way on an emotional level. And I want to speak to something you both just were talking about, which is it's harder to maybe, or specifically even what, what Adam was saying, it's harder to meet people. It's not harder to meet people because of your age necessarily. It's harder to meet people because the context isn't there. So like it's easier to meet people in school or if you are in a workplace scenario, you might have more experiences with those work people. Even if you were just talking about work, eventually you'd be off the clock sometimes. You'd be going, you know, to an after hour place or something like that. And then you would, I mean, the clean after hour places. And sure. then you'd be going to. <laughs> the bike trails. The bike trails. <laughs> then, yeah, yeah, the bike trails. And then you'd be having like more experiences, like you said, more adventures and you can sure. meet them. And I think that, that we're lacking those contexts. And that's why, like, in the in the collective, that space, what we're trying to do is create those contexts that where people feel safe being vulnerable, and they know the people around them are supporting and encouraging to them, so that it facilitates that connection. That's the how, because connection and trust happens in the vulnerability, right? That's where it happens. If I, if I, if I can take my armor off and be vulnerable with you, that's telling you I trust well, you. Well, you did that already. You and shared it, us your backstory, and that, that was to some oh, degree yeah, your yeah, vulnerability, yeah. and I could empathize with you easily because I had a similar background. And so, therefore, you and I, I can understand you more because, sure, I can maybe assume a few things, but you were vulnerable enough to share a story that sort of shaped who you are and why you think the way you do that I think mirrors some, if not all, of how I feel. Like I had a similar experience, and so therefore we can be more deeply connected because we have similar paths, similar pathways to our thinking. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's interesting as we talk because I can't help but, you know, think about the sort of trying to think of the word, but overlap, dare I say, in sort of talking about mindfulness and this sort of sense of connection and how much we have to be open right? And that that's the antithesis. Like when we're stressed, we want to push back and close down and yet we need connection. But because of the vulnerability, again, we're 
apt to step back and close down. Yeah. What, what mindfulness does is it connects the prefrontal region with the, the limbic system or the amygdala, which is the more emotional region of our brain. The emotional region of our brain is saying, shut down, shut down, shut down. Danger, 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 because we're wired this way, right? And the prefrontal region is saying like, oh, hey, wait a minute. Oh, hey, wait a minute. I just read this Brene Brown book and told me that I need to be vulnerable and to trust. So that seems like a wise thing to do. And then like, but you find yourself in your relationship and it's just you're retracting, right? Mindfulness allows us to do is notice that reactivity that's happening in our nervous system. Soften our bodies and take a deep breath. Widen that space between stimulus and response and say, this is the change I want to see in myself. I'm going to take this step in this direction because I've now slowed things down. I've pinched the screen and zoomed in. Pinch and zoom. Right? Yeah. Pinch and zoom. I pinched and zoom. I see the emotional center getting all you know crazy. I, I work with some of my clients and I tell them there's no monsters in the closet. Even if your brain's telling you <laughs> there's right. there's no monsters in the closet. Right. And I zoom in and I say, you know what? I'm just going to take that leap of faith. I'm going to do it slowly. I don't have to rush into this. Don't slow. slow. I'm going to take that first step and I'm going to soften and be here, be present with myself and be present with this person and let's see what happens. You know, as long as it's not an abusive relationship, sure. of course. And so we do that. We do that with ourselves too. By the way, it starts with us. How many of us are afraid or have that same type of reactivity when we're just feeling an uncomfortable emotion just on our own? Like, can I pause enough to recognize the grief that might be here, that, that might be here, um, or the love that might be here? And being present with myself or with another person. We stay away from love too, by the way, because many of us have experienced love goes then with pain. Mm-hmm. You know, loss of loss of somebody, you know, leads to a, a lot of grief, which could be traumatic for people. So they stay away from love again. Right. right. Can I pause enough to feel the love? Can I pause enough to feel the grief? Can I pause enough to be with this with myself? And what happens when I do? Typically, people start to relax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They start to like, relax. Yeah. You know, feel more grounded, feel more present with their life, feel more authentic. Like, you know, if that's the way they're going to go out, they'd rather go out like that than like just avoiding and clenched up, you yeah. know? I just think these are such important conversations to have because, you know, when we don't know that we can make different choices, we're just prone to repeat what we've always done and then don't get where we want to go. And And I think that we all really are designed uniquely for the time in which we're here. And so when we don't, invest in recognizing our own individual design and how we best show up in the world, we don't just injure ourselves, but everyone else Mm -hmm. as well that misses out on what we can each contribute to this world. And that's what I see as like so beautiful about people, the world, and when we work together. I love that. I think that you should transcribe that. That was really well said. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the good thing is, Elijah, is that we have a transcriber for our <laughs> podcast, so it, it will be transcribed. <laughs> grab that, grab that paragraph. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I still agree with that because you know, if if I don't show up to allow Marielle to do her best, or vice versa, you know, if I can't invest in me to invest in the we, you know, then it's a disservice to the what we're trying to do. And it seems easy to just slow down, but I think it is just that easy. Just slow down. And think about what you're doing. We keep seeing this a lot. I mean, at least, at least it's been like my kind of core thought is what is my primary motivation? What is What am I optimizing for? And so too often when I'm struggling in a decision or indecision or thinking, as you said earlier, Dr. Elijah, about thinking too much, too long. You know, we just sit there and think too much about what we're trying to do. What am I trying to do? You know, what, what am I optimizing for? And 
I, back to your father being a rabbi in the bedside at the end of life, I hate to be that more, but it, it truly is that. What do I want to see having done in my life when I'm in that moment of my life? Do I want to work 12 more hours, achieve one more business goal? Sure, those are great things to do. You know, maybe drawing drawing to community and stuff like that and connecting people, but I'm going to care more about a life well-lived if I've cared about the people that have allowed me to be in their life and have been in my life. You know, and so often we just lose touch with that simple thing. Complexly yeah, simple this- thing, I'll say. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's interesting. Um, and and another reason why I love doing this work and having conversations with individuals like you, Dr. Elijah, is because like even amidst our conversation, I have been aware of my breath and breathing and when I'm tensing and yeah. relaxing. And so um I would love for you to sort of wrap things up and give our listeners some resources where they can find you and start to practice more of these skills so that they can show up in the world in the way in which only they can. Yeah, more than happy to. You know, what strikes me as I'm about to share that is this this importance of of that we all have in somewhere deep inside of us of contribution and legacy and kind of considering that, you know, when we're considering this present moment of our life, one of the chapters I have in the Now Effect is called Present Nostalgia, which present nostalgia is like thinking of yourself in the future and realizing what you may be missing right now. And then because you're like, oh, I, I wish I would have been more present for that. And then bringing that into this moment right now and kind of living from that from that space. So we, you can, yeah, you can go to ElishaGoldstein.com. That has some different resources on it. Also, the Mindful Living Collective com is that shared learning space where like thousands of people are in there, you know, right now sharing learning. And there's tons of so many resources in there as far as like medita- a whole topic filled with meditations and people talking about like what helps them around, you know, anxiety and stress and um, joy and celebrating each other and <laughs> talking about obstacles that they're going through and sharing stuff around that. And we have a bunch of different courses in there and deeper groups, like one called the Inner Core, which we meet regularly throughout the week. So those are just a, a number of things that we have. Tons of meditations on my YouTube channel, Elisha Goldstein, PhD. Um, bunch of free, tons of free resources, basically, um, that you can get access to. The final one that I think is really great is this document that I created called Five Keys to Happiness. Um, and that's just ElishaGoldstein.com slash five keys. And that's just a kind of a free resource for you to take and just start implementing those, you know, those five keys into your life. Just again, procedural memory, practice of repetition, mm-hmm. rinse and repeat, and you get stronger with it. Well, we will definitely link those up in the show notes for our audience because, hey, it's easy to click than it is to type, especially you might be driving sure when you listen to this. So <laughs> listeners, you know, we got the resources in the show notes and we'll link those up for sure. Anything else to cover? Anything else to say, Dr. Elijah? I'm just grateful for you guys for putting on this. I think it was a really meaningful conversation. I hope everyone kind of got something from it. All we want to, we know that when we're listening to things, we can only really take away one to three kind of nuggets from things to implement it. So don't try and grab the whole conversation. You can take the sense and the feeling from it, but um, just see if there's something from this that stuck out to you. And whatever that thing is, just see if there's some actionable way you can move forward with it, you know, in the minutes and hours ahead of your life. Pinch and expand. Pinch and expand. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you both. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in today to Brain Science. 
We want to hear from you. Share your comments on this episode at changelog.com slash brain science slash 32. This is episode 32. And of course, join the community. Head to changelog.com slash community. It's totally free. We want to see you. We want to talk to you. We want to get to know you. Hang with us in Slack in the brain science room or anywhere else in the Slack. There's lots of people there. Lots of like-minded folks who are curious and you are welcome. Of course, huge thanks to our partners who make this show and all our shows possible, Fastly and Linode. And also thank you to Brave Master Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And last but not least, we do have a membership where you can support this show directly. Changelaw.com slash plus plus. We call it Changelaw plus plus. It takes the ads away, brings you closer to the metal, and lets you directly support this show and all the shows we produce here at changelaw.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.